Good morning. It is great to be here with you this morning. We owe some people uh, gratitude for what they have done in creating beauty. Hopefully you've noticed as you came in the building this morning. Uh, the decor, the trees, um, the poinsettias, just the beauty of this that reminds us of why we're here and who we celebrate. I hope this finds you well and encouraged in Jesus Christ this morning and that you experience his joy and peace in your life right here, right now. He is who we're going to talk about this morning. We begin a new series. I've called it The Promise. And we start in the Old Testament. Jesus has always been God's idea. And in ages past... God predicted, he promised that he would bless the world, that he would uh, send a Savior, a Messiah. And so in these next weeks, as we approach Christmas Day, we're going to look at what God said in the ancient times in promising Jesus. And then we're going to work our way to the New Testament and the person of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's take our Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God. Jesus lived our life, died our death, raised to life for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life right now and forever. This is what God says. We can trust God to keep his promises. But just what is it that God promises. This morning is going to be like one of those road trips where you go a long ways and you bypass all of the viewpoints along the way that are pretty in and among themselves of themselves, but we bypass the viewpoints so we get to the main point. So each passage we look at, look at this morning has a lot more that we could say about the passage. But we start with Genesis 11 which is a very bleak, dark backdrop to the promise that God makes to us. The backdrop highlights God's promise to the world. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, a lot has already happened in the history of the world. There's a cycle, a cycle of God's blessing on his people, of God giving his word, And then the people defy God, and God judges their sin. And then, as they repent, he responds with an unexpected and extravagant grace. And we also have seen the exemplary lives of those who believed God and his promises. And that's at the core of what we're going to talk about this morning. Why trust God? Well, in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, God always accomplishes his will. God knows what he wants to do, and he's going to do what he wants to do. So when God speaks, you can be confident that this is what God is going to act and do in our lives and in our world. God does what he wills even when we defy him. So in these opening verses, we see... Humanity rebel, we see a defiance against God, and it brings judgment from God. And so the first two verses of chapter 11 finds humanity unified. I mean, they are together. They are tight. And they're on the move. They're traveling together. Well, what is it that unifies and why travel? Verses 1 and 2. Now the whole earth 
used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Well, what unifies them? Language unifies them. Language is the tie that binds. Language provides effective and maximum communication so that you can create understanding one person to another so that we can speak, hear, and understand. Why travel? Well, not long before, the hearts of humanity in Genesis chapter 6 were so dark and rebellious and defiant, defiant against God that God judged the world with a flood with the exception of Noah and his family. So God saved Noah and his family from this judgment because of their faith and their belief in God. So in Genesis 9-1, as Noah and his family start this new world, this new adventure, this new life together, God blessed them and God made a promise to Noah and his family. And in 9-1, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That means go. Go and have families. Go to new places. Find new lands. So they were to scatter and they were to obey God's promise. And so now they're traveling together and they find a great building spot and so they stop. And here's where their obedience to God goes on pause. Because obedience to God is a lot easier when his will fits with our will. Well, now we find divergence. They make a decision. So instead of continuing to go and to scatter and trusting God for their security and their safety and all that the human heart was created to long for but find in the goodness of God and in his pleasure and in his providence. So what is their will? Where do they go wrong? Well, it it might be hard to see, but it begins in 3 and 4. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a tower, a city and a tower, whose top will reach into the heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Well, they were quite innovative. They didn't have the materials in the back of their truck to build this structure or this power and or this tower. And so they, they created them. And they created them out of the local materials. Well, what was their motive? Why did they build? Well, to achieve security, significance, and glory for themselves. And to glorify themselves, they wanted to create a name. And to create a name means to be known, to receive glory, to receive the glory to yourself, to elevate yourself above all else. And so they exalted their name above the name of God. And they lift up their name in prideful ambition. They're fearful. They're afraid of doing what God has said. God has said, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, scatter. They were afraid. They said no, and they defied God, and they built this tower to promote their name, and they worshiped themselves. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. So it is with us. 
that God has shown who he is. He's shown his goodness, his kindness. He's shown his holiness. He's shown that he judges. He's shown that there are consequences to defying him in any and every way. Eventually, he would send his son to take on our sin, to die for our sin, to be raised to life. But there are real-time consequences for this real-time defiance against God. And so they wanted to make a name for themselves. They worshipped their, their own name, and their own name was more important than God's name and more important than obeying God in the moment in his command. But God cared for them. He wasn't finished with them. They reached up to the heavens. How far did they get? Not far enough. They weren't able to reach the heavens. And so the Lord God makes his own decisions, his own actions. He is going to affect his intent and his will in spite of the defiance of humanity. And that's true today. It's true today of nations. It's true today of individuals. It's true today of the United States, of the rest of the world, and all of the chaos that we see, and the collective, the collective national defiance of who God is and what God says. So in order to elevate and escalate their name, they reached to the heavens. They didn't get far enough, and so now we see it in the language that we can understand. The action of God in verse 5 is this. The Lord came down <laughs> to see the city and the tower which the sons had built. Did he need to come down? Of course not. Did he know what was going on? Could he have investigated uh, without coming down? Why does it say the Lord came down? To emphasize their fertility in worshiping themselves, building up themselves, and trying to reach to the heavens. And they failed miserably. Instead, and this is really, really important, and this is emphasized in Bethlehem, God came down. And so we see the, the Lord coming down in verse 5 to see the city which the sons of men had built. He investigates. He discovers what he already knows. And he had created them. So God created us in his image. And a big part of his image is, is language. The ability to, to speak and, and to be understood. Eventually, he would send Jesus and he would call him word, as in the full embodiment and expression of God, so that we can understand who Jesus is and we can read what God says in his word and we can hear it and process it. And now we have an opportunity to respond to it. So God gave us this opportunity to speak. He gave us this language. And so he comes down and he sees what they're up to and then he discovers their motive. He already knew their motive, but now he announces their motive and he ends up stripping them of the tie that binds. He strips them of their ability, everyone in every place, to understand what the other person is saying. So we pick that up in verse 6 through 8. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose, they purpose, you see that, will be impossible for them. So there is a danger to humanity 
in collective defiance of God and what he says. And here he notes that their defiance is their own purpose. It's not his intent, and it's not his purpose. And just as individual defiance is a danger to us and a hurt to us and the people around us, now you have that gathered, and you have it collective, and you have a community that nationally rejects in defiance the purpose and person of God. So God protects them from themselves in an act of judgment so that they can't do together that which actually the tower itself was magnificent. It was something that the the centuries that followed, people would base their buildings and worship centers on towers just like this one, except more magnificent. And so here you see the action of God in verse 6. He comes down and then he says in verse 7, let us go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech, the tie that binds. Now you try to speak to your friend and your friend, he has a different language and you can't understand each other. And so he scatters them by disunifying them and their tendency to defy together against God. It's a unified and defiant rebellion, and it's a threat to humanity, so God judges them. In in verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Well, what did the Lord say? He said, go to Noah and his children. And this is like a hundred years after the Lord said that to Noah and his children. So they've already forgotten what the Lord said, or if they remembered what the Lord said, they were unwilling to do what he said. And so the Lord comes down and he does what he intends in his will to do all along. And so now they scatter. And we find in verse 9 what God says. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Babel is closely related for a word to confuse. In fact, Babel is the noun for the verb, which means confused. And so the Lord came down and he confused them. And now the result is their greatest fear was to obey what God had said. God had said, scatter, fill the earth. They were afraid of doing that. That's why they gathered. That's why they built. That's why they stayed together. And so now their greatest fear is what the Lord has done because the Lord always accomplishes his will. And so now the people scatter. And so this unified and defiant rebellion, at least in this group, is totally broken. And so now they scatter And we have them turning into their own nations. So now you go from this one group to many different groups. And those many different nations would, in many cases, become tyrannical nations. And these tyrannical nations would cooperate and exercise their power. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you see how nation is against, turned against nation. 
So God not only scattered them, but he turned them into nations that would war with one another. Well, why did he do that? Because he has a perfect, preferable, much better plan to unify the nations. To unify the nations not only together with one another, but to unify the nations with him. So you go from collective defiance of a people to God to collective worship by people of God. How will God do that? Well, that's the rest of our story. That brings us to the very next chapter in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We're introduced to two people, Abram, Sarai. Their names would later be changed to Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 11 introduces us to Abram and Sarai. She is described as childless. So God is about to make the promises we're about to read to a childless couple already pretty long in tooth. They're pretty old already by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12. And later, I I suggest you read the rest of the story of Abraham and Sarah because it is full of why would they do that? They're clearly flawed. They do things that you think, wait a minute. Why in the world does God bless this man? He's not doing anything to deserve this blessing. Well, that's the rest of the story. And so we pick up the account. Secondly, faith in God and his promises catalyzes obedience to God. Right here, right now. No waiting, no delays, no looking over your shoulder in the rear view, or looking in the rearview mirror, but looking to God and who he is, hearing what he says, and taking what is here a radical, wild, inconceivable step toward God and an action of obedience in the moment that many of us have never taken this extreme of a step of obedience. But this is what the Lord told Abram to do. So we read in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Go forth. Leave your home. Leave your relatives. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? What do I need to take? I have a box cram-packed with paper maps. I, I love to look at the maps. They kind of medicate me. I, I like to plan trips. And often I'll plan trips in detail. And so when our family would travel different places, or Nancy and I would in foreign environments, I would plan for the plane trips, the rental cars, the place we would stay at night. And what that means is that when you pick up the rental car, you have to get to your destination, and that increases the urgency and perhaps even the stress of having to get where you plan to go because you found the cheapest deal in this place. But there were other times where we would land and pick up the rental car, and we wouldn't know where we were going to go. We just went. And we went wherever we wanted. 
And then we would get closer to evening and get on our cell phone and start finding an Airbnb or a place to stay. And there was an, an adventure in that. But even in going where we didn't know where we were going, we knew the way home. There was a place. It was family and friends and security and safety and all of those things that God created us to desire. I can't imagine packing a U-Haul with all of our stuff, leaving our house, looking at Nancy and going, what's next? Where do we go? And not having a plan. Well, the plan here is only God knows. So the command is to this childless couple is absolutely stunning. What is the command? You guys see it? Do you see it in verse 1? Go. It's a non-negotiable. Go. Abraham or Abram, as far as we know, he didn't question the Lord. The Lord doesn't tell Abram where he's going to go. Sometimes the Lord's commands are short on details. Sometimes there are gaps in what God says. You know, God, if you tell me where you want me to go and how I'm supposed to get there and what resources I need to have, I'll hop on my bike and I'll do wheelies all the way there. And the Lord says, go. I'll show you. I'll show you where I want you to go. This, this requires extraordinary faith to me because now our confidence is, is not in where we're going or in the resources we need to get there. It's in a person. It's, it's a faith. It's a trust. It's a buy-in. I, I, I trust you. I don't have all the details you do, all the info that you have, all of the strength, wisdom, perseverance you have, but I know you. And you say go, so that's what I'm going to do. That's why when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, which gives this epitaph, this summary of, of Abraham and who he is and what he's noted for, it says this, and it's on the screen in front of you, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So the Lord says, go, and Abraham obeyed, and then the Lord made a promise through Abraham to bless him and bless the world through one of his descendants, and each line in verses 2 and 3 is cram-packed with this promise. So we read verses 2 and 3, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. In chapter 11, what was their desire? Their desire was to make their own name great. And so now the Lord says, I will make your name great. And then he says, I will make your name great for a reason, for a purpose. And that is, so you shall be a blessing. So that the blessing that God gives to Abraham is not just for Abraham. It's for who? It's for the whole world. It's in part for us. So you shall be a blessing, verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
so I will bless you and I will make a great nation of you. And he did. And that great nation is, is the nation of Israel. And then the blessing includes security. What kind of security? Well, although God provided great wealth to Abraham, it was, it was for a purpose. But the blessing to Abraham was much greater than material blessing to provide for his family. It includes a name that is considered great. Abraham had no idea that he would be applauded throughout the New Testament as a man of faith who trusted God in the moment. And this blessing would include children to a childless couple. You, Abraham are to be a blessing to others just as the Lord blessed him. Abram is to share the blessing of God. And so what God promises in these two verses is security and significance. It's, this is the opposite of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is how we instinctively try to take care of ourselves, provide for ourselves, exalt ourselves above other people and above God. And so we make the plan and it doesn't really come directly from God or is given directly to God. And so now you have God, the Lord God, speaking directly to Abraham. And you have Abraham's response. And he says that he will bless those who blessed him, which means those who support Abraham, and who recognize his role in his life would be blessed. And those who cursed him, what does that mean? Well, those who held Abram in disdain, they themselves would be removed from a place of blessing. So God will protect Abraham because his intent was to protect and bless the world through him. And he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the God who scattered the nations will one day unite the nations as only God can. And he will unite the nations through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You and I, right here, right now, no more about the details of God's plan and how God would bless the world than Abram did in that moment at that time. We know the gospel is fulfilled in Jesus. There's so much more to the blessing that God promised to Abram that he knew his faith would be challenged. And so he's noted for his faith in obeying God in this moment, but he was a deeply flawed person. You want to ask him, as you read his story, Abram, tell me, what's the deal with Egypt? Where you take your wife down to Egypt and you put her in peril and you're about to leave her. What? Why? Well, Abram, God promised you descendants. Why Hagar? Hagar. What's the deal with her? Sarai's servant. And so you see that he evidences these moments where he, he lacks faith. And he, he takes matters, tries to take care of it himself. But God is gracious. And so we see in the story of Abram and the blessing of Abram, a dominant theme of God's patience and kindness with us and his grace. And his grace is central 
to this promise. So his response is at the very beginning of verse 4. So what did he do? Abram went forth. Obedience. In that moment. So now he's faced with this decision. Is God trustworthy? Is he going to do what he says? Is he going to provide? Is he going to keep, you know, his side of this deal? And Abram trusts him. And so Abraham goes forth. Why trust God? Now we get to the main point. Uh, Third, God's blessing to the world is in and through his son, Jesus Christ. That's in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But on the way there, you might stop in Galatians 3, 14, and you see the name Abram mentioned with the fulfillment of the promise. In 3.14, it says this, In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the promise. The promise is Jesus Christ, who when we confess our faith in this Jesus Christ, God gives us His Spirit, and His Spirit dwells within us, so that God then gives us all that we need in order to say yes in the moment to the Word of God as we understand it. Because most of the Word of God is accessible to us. Parts of the Word of God are mysterious and difficult and complex, and we wonder, uh, I'm not sure I understand this, but the bulk of the gospel is accessible. You and I can reach out. We can see it. We can believe it. It's Jesus Christ who gives to us His Spirit, who indwells us, helps us understand the Word of God, gives us strength to obey the Word of God. And so that brings us to the promise in verses 4 through 7, and that is Jesus is God's promised blessing through Abraham. And Jesus Christ is the blessing of Abraham to the whole world. And what about this blessing? What does it look like? Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is millennia after God's promise to Abram. The Lord says when the time was right, not our time, his time, God sent his son, fully God, fully man, born of Mary. Remaining God's son, deity, God, he became like us in our humanity. Seemed to take a long time for God's promise to unfold and reveal. God's time is perfect. By the time Jesus was born, his people had been waiting a long time for God to fulfill his promise. So that faith in God has two primary aspects. Faith in Jesus Christ is both right now in this moment with the decisions that you're facing where you sit. It's the what next. It's the right now. It's the right here. And the complexity and the immensity and all of the questions that come with, well, how am I going to... I'm too weak for that. I don't know how I'm going to do that. But God has spoken to it. And if you know Jesus, He's given... You His Spirit, and then you look back at all of your failures and the times that you face planted, just like Abraham, and you go, "Is that going to happen again?" Only if we say no in this moment to who He is 
and what he says. So there is a right now moment to our faith. It's not a someday faith. It's not, it's, it's, it's what tomorrow brings. We don't know. But we have faith in God, not just faith, faith in God, in Jesus, in trusting him in his spirit for right now. But there is a future element to faith. It's long-term faith that changes right now. And that is we look at our nation, we, we look in our communities, we look at what's going on and the snowballing effect of sin, the renaming of what God has said is good and the renaming of it is evil. We have good being called evil, evil being called good. And you see that escalating and growing, and so you agitate, and you listen to the news, and you worry about tomorrow. Well, faith has a future element that that God doesn't have to come down here to know and to see what's going on. That Jesus is on the throne, and that he reigns on high, and that he's going to do and fulfill. He is going to fulfill the promises of God on this earth in his will. In his way. So we can trust God in the past, that he has forgiven us right now, that he provides for the moment and in the future. And that's what we see in verse 6. Why did he come down, born of Mary, born in Bethlehem, born in this rock cave in a far off place to live our life, die our death? Raised to life, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. He redeemed us. That means he purchased. That means he bought. That means, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that he bought us so that we can give our lives to him. He gives himself to us. We can give our lives to him. So he redeems us. It means we're forgiven of sins so that when we hear the floor creak in our memories, we can remind ourselves that in Christ, we are forgiven, fully forgiven of sin. And we don't have to fear. But there's more. God sent his sons so that we can become daughters and sons of God. So these next verses are absolutely crammed with grace because we see in verse 5, God adopts us. God adopts us as his own, as his own children. Ernest Hemingway once wrote a, a powerful story called The Capital of the World. And the story tells of a, a father who was estranged from his son. We don't know why they were estranged. But he placed an ad in the newspaper in Madrid. And the ad said this, quote, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Hemingway says the next day, 800 Pacos crowded around the newspaper office seeking forgiveness from their dad. Now, that's in us. God put that in us. He, he put in us this connection with our dads and our moms. And that connection is profound. 
and it has a powerful impact that cuts both ways. But one of the positives of, of an earthly father is we better understand that we have a, a heavenly father without those flaws. And our desire is to know him and to be known by him and to be forgiven and right with our heavenly father who adopts us as his children in and through faith in Jesus. The results of our adoption are magnificent. It's the fulfillment of the greatest desire of the human heart. In verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are, key phrase, (laughs) no gods. In a season of giving, God gives the greatest gift. He gives himself. He gives his son. He gives his spirit dwelling in us. So that God authors life change among his children and he helps us to love those who know us best. And he gives us a privileged vocabulary for our heavenly father. And it's the name Abba, which means dearest father. It is a relational emotion invoking title of respect. It means we know him and he knows us. We know we're loved by him and close to him. And he's the one who adopts us and sets us free, no longer slaves, to serve our Abba, our Heavenly Father, because we love Him. We're no longer slaves. We're children. Broken and flawed and forgiven, but free. We're children of a a patient, good, loving Father who knows who we are, knows what we've done, what we're going to do, and He loves us anyway. And now we have future faith that we have an inheritance That's yet to come, he says in verse 7. That we'll be with him forever. And like Abraham, it requires faith in Jesus to believe in God's future promises. So it may seem like God takes his time, but he has a different time frame. His time is not our time. But in the fullness of time, God does what he wills and we can trust him to do what he says. And so this morning... As we approach the communion table and do what he says in remembering who he is and why he died and who we are as forgiven followers of Jesus Christ, you and I, as children of our loving Heavenly Father, we get to be honest with God. How do we do that? Well, if you're here this morning, you've never heard this story, this truest of stories. If you've never confessed your faith in Jesus then to be honest with God would be right now where we are to confess our our faith in Jesus, our sin against him, and to turn to Jesus Christ, believing that he did indeed die and was raised from the dead. But if we do know Jesus, our Savior, then we're redeemed. He bought us. We're indebted to him beyond words. And we get to express our gratitude and faith to him this morning as we remember him and worship him in obedience to him by taking the bread and drinking the cup in memory of him. Will you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for your extravagant promise to us that you would bless Abram. 
and that through him you would bless the world. Thank you for the blessing of Jesus. Thank you for opening our eyes to who you are, for drawing us to you. Thank you for the life of Jesus, the death and the resurrection and the life that we share with you through him. In the name of Jesus, amen.